If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Bro, we made it to 2020. It's crazy, man. It's been a just time flies. About, oh my goodness, man. Like, you just, just here in 2020, thinking back to like, you know, when I was like a teenager thinking about Y2K. how far away, you know. <laughs> Yeah, Why, two, exactly. Two, two, that's perfect. <laughs> perfect example, right? Like, you know, five. We were like, you know, I would have been fifteen in Y two K, and and you know, remember, you know, it's, I'm thinking of like when I was like eleven, twelve. You're like, oh my goodness, Y two K, like the year two thousand, <laughs> right? Just like, and you're like, oh my goodness, that was more than half of my life ago. Right. Yeah. Twenty years. You know, I that I actually had that. Yeah. I had that kind of thought of like, oh, that was over half of my year, my life ago, a couple times in the last like little while. I don't know why I ended up reminiscing about, you know, something in high school or maybe it was something my niece did or something that just made me think about it. But I was like, yeah, it's like, I don't know. I, I'm making myself sound like I feel like I'm old right now, but. Um, well, you are, man. man. You're wise. You're all wise, man. I know. <laughs> yeah. No, that's crazy. I don't know. I'm doing I'm doing adult things. That's true. Yeah. No. 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 I, yeah. You're right. Because I, I think about yeah 2000, and now it's 2020. Uh, yes. Yes. The year goes by fast, but 20 years went by very fast. And of course, everybody has at their end of the year lists. But since we're going into, um, we just finished a decade. Everybody has their all decade list, or um, for the last 20 years or last 10 years. Uh, greatest musicians, greatest sports plays, most influential person. So, I, so this is a good conversation to have. But uh, for the listener, Joel and I were having a conversation about you know preparing for the episode and narrowing down the timeline. So the argument for the show is uh, the 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 five most impactful things that happened um, that in the last five years that'll impact the next five years for the Canadian economy. Uh, the reason why we didn't do the 10 years is because the first half of the decade, the last decade, uh, won't have as great as a, great of an impact on the next decade going into 2020. Yeah, yeah. it just made more sense. I mean, we wanted to do something unique in this, con- you know, we didn't want to just come up with another list and, you know, so by by doing a let's call it a unique list, or or taking a unique perspective on reflecting on the last decade and saying how is it going to be forward looking, uh, we kind of developed this idea that, um, or or we kind of came to the conclusion that really the stuff in the beginning of the decade is unlikely to be impactful in the next decade, but the stuff in the last five years will be more impactful for the next five years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, okay, so. Okay, so let's should we uh, leave it as a surprise, or we could just let them know what the what the five topics are going to yeah, be. Yeah, well, I mean, they're probably going to if they look at the show notes, they look at the show notes. <laughs> I'm sure they'll figure it out. But 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 for the for the one who 
person who wants suspense, uh, yeah, let's just uh, let's just start running through it. Okay. So, <laughs> all right, that's good. <laughs> not number number five. Number five. Roll the drums. <laughs> I don't know if that sounded like a drum. <laughs> nah, no, nah, that sounded like I don't even know, man. It was like, yeah, it was pretty weak in there. Darnell. Well, actually, Anthony plays drums. We could have got Anthony to give us a drum roll. <laughs> Okay, so at number five, we have the Toronto Raptors (laughs) winning the NBA championship in 2019. Why is that significant, Joel? The biggest thing is regarding how much Canada came around um, the the team. Similar to what happened with the Blue Jays a couple years ago when they were... A couple years. That was in the 90s, man. No, dude. Okay, the well, last time the for, when the Blue Jays went back to back. Ba- no, no. I said when they were on playoff runs. <laughs> That's not the same. Like, all of that to say, Toronto Blue Jays when they made the playoffs for a couple years in a row. There was like this whole Canada support. Um, now you take a team that had that level of support because they're the only team in the league. And actually winning the championship. <laughs> so I was trying to draw a parallel with the Canada-wide support, not the championship side of the, the team. Um, so the I think the biggest impact is going to be just inspiring more and more kids to be... And I've got a few articles uh, that I found. That one was from, I think it was TSN. Um <laughs> And and then another was from I don't know this website called Raptors Rapture, it's kind of random, um, but both just talking about the long term impact of, of the team winning, um, and they had some good quotes. The one that I took really from the the Raptors Rapture website um, basically made something to the effect that they're going to inspire a new generation of basketball talent, similar to Vince Carter at the dunk competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the TSN article actually said, uh, referencing the Vince Carter era, saying it took over 10 years for us to truly see and appreciate the effect uh, that Carter had on on basically basketball in Canada. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where we're going to see the biggest impact. It's just inspiring more kids to get in, in into basketball. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I would also add that I think... Uh, it, being a part of a championship organization is a pretty big deal and everybody wins. So we saw that socially and how the whole country was united. Uh, like, you know, we had our Jurassic Parks, right? So for those people who couldn't afford to get into the game, they would, um, they set up like the, like these huge TVs and then a lot of people would watch the game from outside and so they would start calling that Jurassic Park which started outside of the Air Canada Centre. So what you saw was people from like outside the Air Canada, not, sorry, did I say Air Canada? It's Social, Scotia Bank. <laughs> Scotia Bank. Don't worry, Scotia I still Bank. call it the Skydome. <laughs> Skydome, Scotia Bank Arena. So you have people sitting outside Scotia Bank Arena watching the game. You had people in Mississauga sitting outside watching the game, Pickering, Halifax, Saskatoon, uh, our hometown, Brampton. Like it's crazy when when watching it on TV and seeing like a whole country um, united and everybody just had it was almost like Christmas 
for for those people who aren't part who have never been a part of a championship organization it was like christmas around toronto like everybody was in a good mood everybody was sharing <laughs> everybody was talking every like it was it was it was a really good feeling the, the city had a good vibe oh man yeah 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 no it it, it was straight positivity until that mm-hmm. one ninja shot up the the parade but anyways i'm not going to give that guy any clout so oh yeah 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 that yeah. was crazy yeah but, but anyways, <laughs> right. But anyways, uh, but we also see like economically all the money that came to the country. So there was an article that said uh, in terms of hard numbers uh, and the ripple effects of the playoffs on the economy proved fruitful. Last week, Stats Can released figures that show the Raptors helped Canada's Canada's economy during the month of May, contributing to increasing the GDP by 0.2 percent. The economy grew more than economists expected during this time frame, with a 0.5 increase in the arts and entertainment industry and a 0.4 jump in the accommodation and food services playing a notable role. These sectors include sporting event ticket sales, as well as attendance at TV screen filled bars and restaurants across the country. So according to credit and debit processing firm, Maneras. Uh, transactions in Ontario bars and restaurants increased by 23% during Game 6 of the Eastern Conference Finals between the Raptors and the Milwaukee Bucks. And then in Toronto, this figure climbed as high as 76%. Most notably, however, in Vancouver, they peaked a whopping 90%. And then in Calgary, was 79%. You know, revealing the strength of nationwide fan base. Right? And that's not even talking about the the tourism when people were coming here to watch the games and take in take in the culture yeah i mean you know here's one of the like you know with, when you look at something like stats can just a, a, to, a bit of a sidebar um you know if if you're really trying to measure economic effect the problem is you know did we just take the money from sally and give it to john Right. So not so much the tourism piece. Right. People coming to this country is, let's say, not spending money in the U.S. and They're spending money here. But if I'm spending money to watch a Raptors game instead of go to a movie. It's not really an increase in economics or economic wealth or economic spending. Hmm. It's just a movement of spending that's one is measurable, but you can it's it's I mean, in economics, the t- idea of opportunity cost. Right. What did I give up in order to do that? Um, when I took the money out of the U.S. and came to Canada, okay, that's great for Canada. Um, but if they're only able to measure that, oh, there was an increased spending in, let's just call it entertainment for simplicity. Right. Well, what did they take from? Or did they take something? Did they take out of their savings? Did they take, you know, where did that extra spending come from? Um, a, a bit of a sidebar, uh, you know, I don't want to go down that road too much, but me being an economist-oriented type of thinker, it, as soon as I read that, you know, Stats Canada is going to be purely numbers uh, and there's an inability to really capture opportunity cost um, just because it's it's too hard to measure because, you know, everybody's going to pull from a different place, assuming they're substituting spending from one place to another. Um, it's not going to be consistent. It's not like everyone's going to stop spending money, um, you know, on food in order to watch the Raptors. <laughs> so... It's going to be, you know, this guy stopped here. This guy didn't buy his lottery ticket this week. Whatever it is, right? Like, it's going to be all over the place. Mm-hmm. But um, the the uh, the thing I thought was really cool was just, like, 
with regards to the whole Canada being behind them is the fact that they had Jurassic parks around the country. Right. So yeah, in Toronto, there's an aspect of, you know, for the people who can't afford to go to the game, you know, there's a Jurassic park, but Vancouver is having a Jurassic park or, you know, places where people live too far to even come to the game unless they're mm-hmm. going to fly, which is mm-hmm. essentially only the upper class who can really do that for the most part. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that's where I, I just thought um, the hype uh, was going to be, you know, that's where the, the impact is coming from. There's so much hype around the team that the sport itself is going to see an, uh, an uptick. Um, and then in the long run, you know, fi- like, like that other quote I read said, it might take 10 years for us to see the fruit of a 10-year-old who starts, be, you know, loving basketball mm-hmm. becoming, that's you true. know, an NBA a player. No, no, that's um, true. That's true. We're definitely going to see the fruits of that. You know, there one of the articles, I think it was, uh, I don't remember which one. I think it was actually the TSN article. They referenced um, uh, another article that um, talked about, actually it was the Raptors, Rapture article, that basically referenced an article that said, Basketball could become this country's top sport, overtaking hockey. Um, and so that was a CTV news article. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's an interesting perspective. I think it depends on how you look at it. I mean, is it how you're going to measure Canada's national sport? I mean, technically, Canada's national sport is lacrosse. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, if we're talking about... You know, what is Canada known for? It's always going to be hockey. Um, you know, from an NHL perspective, you know, it was one of the things I thought the article did, one of that, that article, the CTV article did a bad job on was um, kind of talking about the Canadian teams and how well we're doing. Um, I don't know if that's a appropriate um, measure because... You know, when you look at the number, I, th- I don't know the number exactly, but historically speaking, majority of the NHL is hockey is Canadians. Uh, I think right now the number is roughly 50%. Um, it might, might have dropped. I know it used to be higher. Um, it's basically, you know, give or take 50%, plus or minus, you know, a percent or two. I'm sure it isolates over year over year. And, and I would assume it's going to continue to go down, um, you know, as the a sport becomes more prominent, you have more people from U.S. and, and, and European countries taking over in the NHL. Um, so all that to say, I think we're just going to have um, more kids involved with basketball, whether that's basketball and hockey, that's basketball instead of hockey. I mean, obviously, there's a huge cost barrier with regards to hockey. I know for, I think I remember reading an article from Hockey Canada a few years back that they were finally saying, yeah, you know what, youth enrollment is hockey is actually declining for the first time in forever. Um, but that's more around the cost of the game, uh, running rinks, all these things that are just, it's its not a cheap sport, right? So Right. Right. No, uh, when I think about the um, Raptors winning, like I, like I said before, I was at a bar for I can't remember what game it was. Uh, maybe it was the Sixers or Milwaukee. I think it was Milwaukee Bucks game. And and you know I you know I I grew up playing basketball. And for the first time ever, like I realized, like when I was watching the game in the bar, people were cheering every time the Rap Raptors scored. And like you know that that's what they do in hockey. You know that's what that, that that's what they do in baseball. That's what they do in soccer. Like in basketball, you don't cheer for every point. 
You know what I mean? Because there's a lot of points. No, you cheer in the fourth quarter. Well, well, you know what I mean. Yeah, but you you, you don't cheer. I'm kidding. I'm yeah, kidding. Of course, you don't you don't cheer every point. But it was it was um it was it was awe it was awe inspiring to me to see everybody cheering every time they scored a point. So I was like, okay, wow, this is this is a big deal. Um, people are really hyped about this. Mm-hmm. So it, it was really a good feeling. So I think you know just because we're on the sports tick, I just want to give a little bit of shout outs for the for the listeners who are like, what about what about you know. We're, we saw a very similar thing with Bianca Andreescu this year in tennis. So, you know, she's going to have a similar catalyst, but it wasn't, you know, it's it's not as much of a national sport. Nobody's playing uh, tennis, Canada, man. <laughs> dude, this, this girl's 19 years old, beating Serena Williams at the U.S. Open, coming on the stage, like just taking over eh. to some extent the way Serena did eh. when she came on. Softings. So, Softings. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the last thing I'll just say, you know, I think Toronto and and basically, you know, for the sports that only have one team, Canada's sports teams, we're I think you're going to expect to see all of our franchises out of the Toronto area competing, uh, doing well over the next five ten years. Yeah, I so, think so too. I mean, as much as it's just the Raptors, you look at the Leafs, Toronto FC, place the Jays, Toronto FC is you know, playing they're well. on the upswing. They've got yeah. a lot of young talent. TFC has been winning championships. Um, you know, so you've you, I think. Toronto is going to be blessed, um, blessed with with some good sports uh, and some good playoff runs uh, over the next little while. Championships, to be honest, um, it's hard to say. Uh, Darnell, what are your chances? What do you think the Raptors' chances are if they don't make any big plays or make any big signings of winning a championship again in the next five years? Uh, well, well, I, I don't. I think, like I said before, I think, you know, us experiencing the championship puts a, gives a lot of incentive to all the org- all the Toronto organizations to be like, oh, wait, so that's what it feels like? That's what it looks like to win a championship? Um, so mm. I, I know a lot more teams are going to be like, okay, and they can learn something from Masai Mujuri, Masai Ujiri, in, in regards to how he was making big and controversial moves, not afraid to move De- DeMar DeRozan, not afraid to move some of your key players to try to, you know, take it in one shot versus trying to build a championship team over a long term. So I know that was a lot of motive. I know that'll be a lot of uh, um, a lot of motivation for the um, for TFC, for the the especially the, the Maple Leafs, right? They're like, oh nice. man, they're like, oh man, it should have been us. <laughs> but anyways, but anyways, um, but well, that's why I, I, I think. You know, it's what what's interesting about that is that there's, you know, arguably Toronto Raptors have had a hard time bringing talent in, and and Masai, knowing that, didn't take did basically took matters into his own hands. He didn't leave it in the players to sign with him. Yeah. Um. And hopefully, the the fame or the the, you know, all of that goes along with the Raptors doing as well as they did last year. Hopefully, that'll improve. I'm hopeful that that'll improve their ability. To yeah, because remember, remember when when he traded or, when or he traded talent. Yeah, because when he traded for um when he traded for Kawhi, Kawhi um, he didn't want to come here, um, and he wasn't planning to stay here. Mm. But uh, you know, you, technically, you don't bring guys into your organization that don't want to be here. But you know, I guess Masai was just doubling down and going all in, put all all his eggs in one basket, and and. He, you know, we came out on top, so that was really dope. Mm-hmm. 
But okay, let's move on. Well, to, and I mean, oh. he he was. Yeah. No, no. I, I mean, I could keep talking about the Raptors because he just positioned himself in such a way that if things fell apart, he was basically ready to rebuild. But no, we're not there, so it's all good. Anyways, moving on to the next topic. Darn. Number four. Drum roll. What? What the? <laughs> okay. Right. That was that was me whacking my table. Event number four. Cannabis. And we've already done two podcasts on this. Well, yeah, one and, and a half. Yeah, and we also went to one a conference. Was on uh, the O Cannabis Conference. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that's right. why I said one and a half podcast. Yeah, yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Joel and I at the half was on the conference. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Joel and I went to the O Cannabis conference and expo uh, it was on uh, april 25th and 27th so that was a lot of fun and yeah so we just got to and, really and that was uh, episode 44 yeah yeah episode 44 yeah yeah so check that out uh but um, <laughs> yeah sorry go ahead way back on episode 10 we did our cannabis legalization episode we did um and I, i'm pretty yeah, Whoa. we we did. Yeah, <laughs> Darnell, we did an episode on legalization because, um, it was we we released it, uh, I guess early January 2018 because as of July 2018, uh, Canada was legalizing, uh, rec- cannabis for recreational use. Right now, I think that actually didn't come into effect until like October because the government is very slow in passing their laws. But different problem, um. All that to say, uh, I'm pretty pumped because our, our our boy Anthony keeps tweeting at me. Didn't you predict this? Didn't you predict this? With all the the ridiculous news that comes out, uh, like how um, the Ontario cannabis company or whatever lost forty bi- million dollars last year, or forty was it billion or million? I don't know. They lost a bunch of money selling cannabis. The Financial Post came out with an article uh, called. 2019 was a disaster for the cannabis sector and there might be more trouble on the way in 2020. And so uh, it, it features Greg Taylor of Purpose Investments and Van Mala Sabramanian of Financial Post Tone. And so they were basically talking about the problems that the uh, private sector ran into in regards to navigating the legalization of cannabis. So the three things that were of major concern in 2019 for the cannabis industry was the vaping health scare, and hopefully we get to do an episode on that, looking deeper into it. Uh, People haven't switched from the black market to the legal market, as they thought people would. Uh, Another issue was the branding changes. So take away the marketing restrictions uh, on the private companies, as well as that there will be more U.S. states um, will opt for legalization and possibly steal the thunder from some of the Canadian cannabis industries. And what's unique about the U.S. situation is that both Republicans and Democrats are are trying to fight for who's going to um, legalize it first. Yeah, essentially, it's sweeping the entire U.S. I mean, essentially, mm-hmm. you're getting, I think it's over 50% of the states now. Obviously, it hasn't been done federally yet, uh, which does create somewhat, somewhat of an issue. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, you know, when we did our O Cannabis conference, I don't know if we said it on the episode, but I know we talked about it, me and you at least. Canada has a, had a first mover advantage in that we we legalized it first as a country. Uh, so arguably, you know, we were creating a environment for for organizations to to thrive here. Um, but as your article kind of hints at, the way that Canada did it um, was was in essence deeply regulated. Um, and so, you know, there are, again, the economics hat that I put on, I've read some stuff that basically argues a government regul over government regulation is worse than, than in essence, a socialized industry or a, a, a government monopoly. And, and that's just because you, you're adding extra costs, um, to the market when you're regulating. I, I mean, Cannabis was crazy level of regulation. Um, when they first passed, it was like every inch of your facility had to have a camera on it. You couldn't have any dead spots. It wasn't like you just had to have the entrances and exits covered. You you essentially had to have so much regulation uh, about you know what would what you were allowed to do as a cannabis producer for the recreational industry, um, mm-hmm. and technically the medical industry too. Um, so all that to say that clearly this article indicates that the way Canada rolled out the program has not not really worked out very well. That said, you know, how do we still put this on our list? I think it's, you know, the bigger issue around not so much, let's say, the companies in Canada or the, or the industry in Canada, but for the customer. And, and this, I would argue, is going to be worldwide, not just Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, things like um, the products that are going to come out of the industry. So, and I'm not just talking about cannabis. I'm thinking along the lines of hemp. Um, be, and, I, I mean, I can put a, there's a documentary from 2007 called The Union, The Business of Getting High, um, that, that really broke down some of, how, it's more U.S.-based, but it, it does a good job of demonstrating how, Cannabis and hemp essentially were both made illegal at the same time. And it started out, one was used to make the other illegal, and then it turned around and they used the other one. Like, it's kind of convoluted, but when you, if you watch it, you know, if anyone's interested, uh, where that's interesting is because, you know, things like paper or other products arguably are more, more appropriately made with hemp products or hemp you know, pulp and, 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 you know, the stock of the, the plant, the, the cannabis and hemp plant is more of a high, highly renewable resource. Its growth cycle is vastly different than a tree and, and similar. Um, the problem is that the technology and machinery to process these things hasn't really been modernized. Now, obviously that's starting to happen but when you're competing with industries that have been, let's say, legal for 100 years, no one's really been spending the money or time doing development of, of processing for a plant or a, a, you know, a resource that essentially was illegal. And, and in the U.S., hemp literally was illegal for the last 100 years. So we're talking no THC, no, you know, no psychoactive product. Essentially, it's just a... A plant 
that has been illegal and and that's where i think one of the biggest pieces is going of, of this industry or or why cannabis is going to be you know forward looking impactful is because of really hemp alongside with with um the cannabis market growing with respect to development and new products um i got an article i'll put it in the show notes page that just talked about um the seven what is it perfect pl- it's titled perfect plant question mark seven great uses for industrial hemp uh, i'll just read the headlines one clothing two food and beverages three paper four building supplies five plastics six fuel seven chemical cleanup um so yeah i think uh that that's just the not even medical that's the you know alternative product um being hemp what about you darnell from uh you know the other side of the article that you quoted what do you think uh, or what makes cannabis on your list or why you think cannabis belongs on our list well i think that when we look at the intended consequences. So everybody was planning to, there was just a lane for everybody to run in. So you had um, the security aspect, uh, testing lab service, packaging and supplies, pest control, storage, HVAC, technology, online stores, soil, labeling, licensed producers, uh, the hydroponics, construction, air control, nutrients, extraction, Horticulture, consultant, greenhouse systems, agriculture, media, engineering, insurance, vaping, clinics, cultivation, pharmaceutical, and the list goes on. Everybody had a lane to run, but of course, because of all the regulations, it's made it difficult for people to run in their lane. Uh, But what we see also is like these unintended consequences in regards to the negative aspects of legalizing cannabis that we're dealing with. And we're going to see the consequences going into 2020. So we're going to see a negative impact on the healthcare system in that people are going to start experimenting more. Uh, Also the mental health aspect in regards to young people smoking, like, yeah, we don't want them to smoke, but guess what? They're going to smoke. And now that everybody says it's legal, now they have more incentive to say, get off my damn back, mom. It's legal now. Everybody's doing it, <laughs> right? And then you also yeah. have uh, the transportation industry with people driving high, mm-hmm. right? So so these are the things going forward um, that, you know, especially as Canadians, we're going to see uh, an increase in uh, the madness, uh, <laughs> well, so and, to speak. Uh, to play devil's advocate, I would say the the impact is essentially unknown, right? So, you know, what is the impact going to be on, let's say, driving, right? What is the impact going to be on um, children, you know, underage usage, let's call it? You know, what is the impact, um, you know, with regards to, let's just say, drug abuse, now that it's legal versus when it was illegal, you know, to some extent, we don't know. Like, th- these are all hypothetical potential problems or, hi- yeah, hypothetical. So, are you saying that people aren't driving high now? I'm saying the question is, is it happening more? Right now that it's legal. Right. So what or or like are people. So before it was legal, 
I mean, I think I read a stat, something like 50% of Canadians had smoked weed. Now, I don't know if they... I think that was like... I, I think it was actually like 50% smoked weed in the past year or something like that. Like, essentially, Canada had a really high number of, let's just say, you know, somewhat, you know, non... Or, or somewhat recreational users, even though it was illegal. So... The question I have is, let's say usage does go up um, to whatever that number looks like. Are there going to be a significant amount of people driving? Like, yes, people are going to drive high. Yeah, just like, yes, people drive drunk. Like, it happens. It sucks. It's horrible. It shouldn't happen. Right. We don't want people, um, you know, on the road in a way, in a manner that they look like, uh, Tiger Woods when he got pulled over. <laughs> Do you know the Tiger Woods scenario I'm talking about? Uh, no. But go ahead, keep going. Oh, he was on he, he was on prescription medication, and and didn't realize that how essentially he was stoned out of his tree, um, and and there's a like a you know a photo of him in the whatever when what's the the that those pictures called when they t- when they arrest you? Uh, the oh his mugshot. mugshot. His mugshot. His mugshot is like. Yeah, it's bad. Um, anyways, but the idea, like, you don't want people on the road that, that can't control their vehicle. So the question is, now that it's illegal, is that going to increase significantly? Right? Because if, let's say, 0.002% of people drive drunk, and we're going to see a similar stat with cannabis, is this is that a significant change? Is it really just the people who used to drive drunk are now willing to drive high? Like, again, uh, I mean, these are all just, I'm, I'm posing questions to say, like, it's a potential problem. It's, we don't know that it's a problem. Ideally, people should be knowledgeable enough to say, this isn't safe. I'm not going to do it. Um, so, because the, the other side of it, like, you you referenced the, the medical industry, right? The, the, the counter egg argument or the sorry a different argument would be the opioid crisis and and actually having cannabis as legal may actually help that problem it might help reduce the opioid crisis it might help deal with some of the fentanyl toxicity issues because now we have less people using opioids less people getting addicted to opioids less people now accidentally taking fentanyl laced products because they can no longer support their addiction because their prescription ran out um or instead of trying to to get illegal opioids they're going to cannabis to transition away because there's less side effects and all these other things like again all this to say you know one of the things i'll say i'm excited about to some extent with cannabis is there's a huge opioid epidemic and i I mean i've heard enough i think a couple nfl players saying like essentially I know it's illegal for us to smoke, but I'm more willing to smoke weed than take the drugs they prescribe me because those drugs mess me up. Mm-hmm. You know, if I come yeah. back from football practice and smoke so I can relax, that's much better than being on the couch as a zombie and a write-off for my family because of these pain pills that they gave me. And then uh, the last thing I'll just say, the, there's, um, there's a, 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 I'll put an article in the show notes page, and it should basically reiterate what i'm going to say is 
Within the body, we have an endocannabinoid system, and that's what can THC and other cannabinoids within cannabis react with. Um, I think, you know, from the stuff that I've read, basically we, we started studying it with respect to, or it started to become understood in regards to THC, but the full comprehension of our endocannabinoid system is really limited, at least with respect to how does it all work. There's an understanding that it impacts uh, the following. So through the, the receptors that are part of the endocannabinoid system, uh, here's the list of functions that it helps to regulate. Appetite, digestion, immune function, inflammation, mood, sleep, reproduction, fertility, motor control, temperature regulation, memory, pain, pleasure, reward. So basically the point is the endocannabinoid system, which cannabis interacts with, actually influences all these parts of our body. Cannabis has over 100 cannabinoids, THC and CBD being the two most prominent. Um, and we, I, what I'm looking forward to or what I'm excited about, I would say from a health nutritional standpoint, is that that endocannabinoid system is going to be continued to study further now. Now that you don't, I mean, especially if the U.S. gets it off the Schedule One list, that's the biggest problem I would say with regards to studies or testing, is that because it's a Schedule One drug in the U.S., there's a huge limitation on the amount of studying that has happened and will continue to happen until that actually gets removed. Um, and so that's why, to me at least, that's why this is on the list because cannabis being something I think we largely don't understand medically or you know pharmacologically um and and now as it's becoming legal from a recreational perspective it's going to be better understood medically as well you know it's going to be fascinating to see what happens in the next five to ten years moving on to number three so it was the walkout by the students in the Toronto District school bar school board for friday september 27th and so students in Toronto across and across Canada uh, were basically planning to participate in the climate change rally. And so the Toronto District School Board is one of several institutions taking measures to support students who plan to walk out of class as part of the global call to action. The Toronto District School Board said in a note to parents, Monday that will ensure students receive no academic penalty for taking part in the rally by asking its schools to avoid scheduling tests and assessments on that day. The rallies dubbed Global Climate Strike are timed to coincide with the United Nations Climate Action Summit in New York. And so the movement is partly inspired by Swedish teenager Greta Thunberg, who has staged weekly demonstrations over the past year under the hashtag Fridays for Future, calling on world leaders to step up efforts against climate change. And that was an article from uh, CTV News. So <clears throat> for me, um, I would say the walkout aspect of this is, is largely irrelevant. Um, we can hash that in a second. Um, but, but I think, you know, for, for me, it's more about the climate change component of this issue. Um, 
I, I, I would say I think the, the walkout is irrelevant because these kids aren't sacrificing anything. You know, these kids are, are basically going to school for free, doing something, or, you know, they don't want to do to some extent. And then they're skipping class. Um, and so I don't know how meaningful the walkout actually was. I'm sure there's plenty of kids that, that were, you know, 100% on board with the, let's call it the mission. Um, but there's, you know, how many of the kids that walked out were just like, I get to skip class. I'm in. Um, so that's where, you know, my, my questioning of the significance of the actual walkout lies. Um, but I think the climate change conversation, whether it be around regulating the use of fossil fuel, fossil fuels, whether it be carbon taxes, whether it be renewable energy subsidization, all of that aspect, I think, is going to continue to be um, a significant issue politically, as well as it's going to impact us financially, because carbon taxes aren't as much as they want to say they're revenue neutral. Um, I mean, you're increasing the cost of something. And, and, you know, we've talked about this stuff a little bit before, but if you look at energy prices in Ontario over the last 10, 15 years, they've just gone through the roof. And, and arguably it has to do with the green energy contracts that are so expensive. And, and the, yeah, obviously there's argumentation that we're trying to invest in the future. Um, that, you know, just to, to play a bit of rebuttal to that, the argument against that is that, you know, think of, I don't know how much the listeners are familiar with R&D kind of subsidization by the government, but in general, when you're subsidizing R&D, you actually have to show development. So it's not just research, it's development of a product in order to qualify for, for tax incentives and credits and whatnot. The, the economics argument is that you over-incentivize development at the cost of research. So if you look at green energy today, the argument or the criticism of it is that it can't hold enough capacity to actually be sustainable for, for the energy needs of, of, let's call it the city or the region. And consequently, we're not, I, I would argue, we're not spending enough money actually developing that technology to make, uh, let's say, batteries hold more or, or batteries cheaper or whatever the, you know, the component um, around, i.e., more research, more innovation, such that that product becomes uh, viable financially on its own. Um, and so all that to say that this is such a muddied industry. It's such a I mean, I, I would vote for removing all government subsidies, both gas and green energy. And let's start actually bearing the seeing what the costs of these alternatives are um, without such deep government uh, influence so that we can start to, to see where things should go. Um, so for me, this is on our list. It's, it's important because... Um, we're going to continue. I mean, Canada alone is in the place where some provinces are going to start fighting with the uh, the, gov the federal government over the carbon taxes that the federal government's trying to put in and provinces 
you know, you've got the liberals versus the conservatives on the provincial versus the federal level essentially going to court. Well, I was pretty concerned with what I saw and a bit worried in that, uh, you know, so I, I believe that, you know, there's no such thing as a neutral education. And so all schools have an, have an agenda and they always should have an agenda. All education is geared to creating a particular kind of person. I'm worried we are raising a generation that cannot think for themselves, but that only adhere to uh, a mob mentality. Students being encouraged to walk out of class and protest in particular things, you know, that's sociopolitical engineering. And it's done intentionally. So it's not, it's not random. So I, I really do believe that this will have a huge impact going into 2020 because those students will one day become, you know, voters, fun- voters and also uh, policymakers and politicians. And well, you, well, you already see where, where their allegiances lie politically. And so you will see a greater impact in, in, in the climate change movement uh, on, on the country. So again, when you look at the economics of it and the inefficiencies of uh, climate change alarm and the alarmism, yeah, yeah, we you know people should be worried, uh, but I think it's very important to just make sure that we're not being um, terrorized or scared of climate change alarmism and like scaring us into the way we vote or interpret policies. Or opposing information. Yeah, I think uh, you know, I when I look at this conversation, um, you know, what frustrates me, you know, you look at someone like Greta Thunberg, who is a um, uh, time person of the year. Yeah, um, which to you know, I did a little bit of research on on time person of the year. It does. There's no no claim to let's say the quality of that person's arguments or that position. It's just a matter of who had the greatest impact on, on their prominence. Yeah. Um, so Hitler was time person. Of, uh, not necessarily even impact. <laughs> Hitler was time. Just Hitler was of time like person of the, the year. Most famous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it was like 37. So like, or, or th- it was like when I remember reading about it, it was like, well, before the, you know, before the war. Um, well, that's cool. But, but in general, it was his mm. polar his polarization of his character that caused him to be the time person of the year. Mm-hmm. I think they, like, there's some weird ones, too. They, like, picked a people group. Like, I don't remember what it was. I say people group because I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was, like, something like, you know, uh, let's say the Tea Party in, you know, when they were doing the, the Boston Tea Party or um, the Tea Party protests when, they, uh, I think, Occupy Wall Street you know, something like that, where it was like a random group of people was the time person of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more about the fame and the prominence and all of the like hoopla around that person. Um, not so much uh, like time kind of validating anything along the, the person or their character or anything like that. So um, not to I'm not trying to say it's less meaningful, but it doesn't it's not about their message as it is a, as much about um how much hype and and you know news they create in regards to her 
you know, the thing that, like, I look at her and, you know, she embodies or she represents this movement. There, There's a lack of discourse in general, in my opinion, around this issue, right? There's no, there's no, like, obviously the children that are being put forward, similar to David Suzuki's daughter 20 years ago, um, they don't let's say, have an opinion or even have thoughts about how do we solve this? There's just, hey, here's a problem. You guys are ignoring it. And we're just on board with, let's just say, the government solution, which is carbon taxes. Um, if, you know, if someone was to say to them, well, carbon taxes aren't actually doing anything. They're a horrible solution. Here's why they suck. Here's an alternative. Well, in essence, those people are you know the 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 children are still kind of on side with the let's just tax everything solution um you know and and the reason i bring that up is to say you know the biggest criticism or the best criticism that i've always heard put towards the the green team if you want to call it that is the lack of support of nuclear because technically speaking nuclear is the greenest or the cleanest and the cheapest um I'm, you know, total sidebar, but but just to say, like, I think this is a an issue that we will continue to talk about and will continue to get headlines, um, and I think, you know, the next decade might be really telling. Um, maybe some of the speculations will come true, or maybe they'll fall flat on their face, and I would say again, <laughs> but that's a uh, another another podcast to keep going on that road. And and for those of you who didn't check out our episode on climate change, Sola Greta, episode 55, uh, yeah, please check it out and you'll hear uh, Joel and I expound more on climate change and Greta uh, Thunberg. Uh, we talked about behavioral economics, economics of climate change policies, public discourse regarding the science of climate change, correlation versus causation. So it was a really good episode. So yeah, please check that out. Okay, so let's look at number two. Jordan Peterson. Okay, so why is Jordan Peterson on the list? Um, well, I think, you know, we, we chose Jordan Peterson um, because the, of the name recognition. I think there's there's so much associated with his name uh, that, that... Hold on. I think... Hold on. For those people who don't know... Who Jordan Peterson is. He's a clinical psychologist and professor at the University of Toronto, and he rose to prominence in his opposition to Bill C-16, which is speaking in gender pronouns, which he refused to do. And so in him refusing to that, the whole thing blew up, and then he became uh, insta-famous. All right. And and to, to you know, steel man his position... He did not oppose using someone's preferred pronoun. He opposed the fact the government largely made it a hate crime and and compelled speech. Um, so his issue was in regards to the fact the way the law is written, you're creating the government's compelling of speech, which is much different uh, than any other sort of regulation in Canada with regards to speech. Or yeah, so because we technically don't have free speech in Canada the way the U.S. does, um, but this was 
to some extent, or or I would say his argument for why he stood up was uh, it was a new territory and they were crossing a line that he thought was very dangerous and, and, and a slippery slope. But, you know, all that goes along with him, I think he's representative of the bipartisanship that we see in society today. Um, so for me, that's why, you know, when I when I think of him as number two, it's not it's not that I think Jordan Peterson is going to be impactful in the next generation or the next five years um, as much as what 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 was the conditions or the environment that caused his rise to fame to even exist? That is more so what I see as as impactful. Um, what about you, Darnell? Is that would you agree with that or do you see it a little bit differently? No, I look at no, I I agree with what you're saying, but I I look at it from the other side of the coin. I think, I think his ideas will have a greater impact on the next five to ten years. So, for example, um, so he's not nihilistic in his thinking. Nihilism meaning uh, there's no such thing as meaning in anything. So he's very big on reality. And then he also makes a charge to young men uh, who are lacking purpose or meaning in life. So he's always talking about cleaning up your room and pushing this idea of um, before you start you know, calling out for your rights, you should be taking responsibility um, for your actions. So he's very, um, he believes in individualism and in that the individual brings the greater change versus the majority. The individual has the capacity to change the world. And I think uh, from a biblical perspective, I think, you know, the Bible also gives a charge to men that, you know, the problems that we're generally having in culture is because of men and men not being responsible. So I really think that the charge to uh, young men to be responsible for their actions and for their families will have a great impact in the uh, next five to 10 years. I, I would pretty much agree with that. I think that's a fair, um, fair statement. I, I think I actually go to some extent a different place for the most part, though, with with my thoughts about him. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, in regards to our our bipartisan kind of culture right now, I think it's it's interesting the environment we find ourselves in. Um, and, and you talked about nihilism and, you know, I would say I agree. I think, you know, it's the, to some extent, there's this idea that under, I think underlies nihilism being postmodernism. If I was giving postmodernism a fair kind of presentation, I would say it's this idea that we as individuals only know things through our subjective experience. And so there's a challenge that says, well, even if someone's trying to write about objective truth, they only know it subjectively. And so you kind of have to deconstruct ideas in order to evaluate, did a bias play a role in the way that someone interpreted the idea or presented the idea? And I would say that's a fair presentation or a fair critique even um, of ideas where I think Jordan Peterson takes issue where I think it goes too far and essentially in line with nihilism is this idea that there is no such thing as 
objective truth or we can't know it at all. Um, and I think that is the, the, that postmodernist idea gave rise to a number of things that I think Jordan Peterson is in a response to. Um, and th that would include things like postmodernism, to some extent, is at the base for cancel culture. It's at the base for identity politics. It's at the base for critical race theory. It's at the base of intersectionality. And th I say that because intersectionality starts to say, well, okay, we're going to value an opinion not based on how objective, how true it is or how objectively true an idea is but we're going to base and i we're going to take someone's uh, ideas and hold them up as more important based on how oppressed you are and and that's just it, it only comes out of the idea that no we don't start from objective truth right we're not looking for objective truth we're just looking for the person who's the most oppressed and we need to elevate them therefore whatever they say um and so that's, you know, when it comes to the gender pronoun stuff, you know, it's like, well, you know, you're taking an oppressed person and saying, well, okay, when I, when I experience X, Y, and Z, it, it's, it's a problem. Um, and, and maybe that's right. Like, you know, the idea of, you know, if someone's transgendered and they're living a lifestyle as a man and they were born a woman and someone's harassing them and calling them she, 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 like, Okay, yeah, it's a problem, but it's called harassment. It doesn't matter that, in my opinion, it doesn't matter what form the harassment takes. It's still harassment. We already have a law for that. Um, and so, and I would say, I think that's where Jordan Peterson's position comes from. So, all of that to, to say that, you know, you also have things like Antifa and, and socialism no longer being a bad, a, a dirty word. Um coming to rise in, in, I would say, under the same culture, under the same scenarios that, that give rise to Jordan Peterson. Um, so when I look towards the next five years, I would say, to some extent, this bipartisanship has to resolve. Like, we're, I would say we're stress testing our political system. You know, when, when Donald Trump gets elected, and you can find footage of people beating up a Trump supporter for being a Trump supporter, to me that demonstrates that the de demo democratic system is failing because the voting is to prevent violence. But in in the way that society is shaping itself right now, you your, your team lost, therefore you got to go to war. Um, and so... I don't know. It's it's uh there's some aspects of this culture, you know, what happens if Trump gets reelected? You know, you look at the election in Canada that just happened. Arguably Trudeau did all the things that would have required cancel culture to take him out with regards to blackface and whatnot. But it didn't. And and the only argument that I would put forth to, as to the rational reason as to why it didn't is because the left uses cancel culture to get what they want. They don't actually care about canceling people. You know, so when you look at Trudeau, well, he represented what they want. So they don't, they know that, you know, canceling him would actually be bad for the, what they want. Um, so, I, yeah, for me, yeah, I think Jordan Peterson's ideas are are good. And, and like you said, 
men being more responsible is very important um, to, to move forward as a society. Um, but I also think that, you know, the, the environment that gave rise to him um, is, is going to come to a tipping point and, and it has to resolve. And I hope it resolves peacefully. All right. Finally, the number one event that happened in the last five years that will impact the next five years is Bitcoin. And for some of our listeners, um, that might be a four letter word to you in that you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but for some of your, li- for some of our listeners, they're, they're going to be criticizing me for using Bitcoin. Um, in general, um, I'm using Bitcoin or I, I, think Bitcoin makes sense to use as the you know reference here um, not because I'm actually speaking about Bitcoin or we think Bitcoin in and of itself but more so uh, the underlying technology of Bitcoin uh, which which is referred to as distributed ledger technology um, and and distributed ledger technology is something that really changes the way, things have to be done um in essence we've historically had centralized ledgers in order to prevent fraud right so think of it in the sense of i have a bank account with cibc cibc does the due diligence to make their make sure any errors are corrected they you know, they do things to make sure my bank account says what I expect it to be. Uh, distributed ledger technology, in and Bitcoin being the, exa- the uh, currency use of distributed ledger technology. The the ledger is decentralized in such a way that it makes it immutable. Um, that's not and and so. You know, that's where something where in the past we've required gatekeepers in order to ensure the safety of my assets um, on a private ledger, let's call it. Uh, the public ledger is is something that is innovative and um, it, it's something that uh, I'm excited about because... Um, for technology speaking sense, um, I think for the listener who's thinking like, what are you talking about, Joel? Cryptocurrency, like whatever, it's nothing, it's not a big deal. Well, the way that I, I think I'm stealing this from um, from somebody else, uh, but I've heard it. The analogy um, was if you look at the internet and you take the application of email, Email was, in essence, the very first, you know, customer-facing or, or consumer-facing use of the Internet. Well, when it first rolled out, it wasn't easy to use. It took four hours to send a paragraph to your buddy down the street. And it was really the guy who knew how to code was the only guy who could use it. Because, you you know, like when we type in uh, an, a website, you know how it says HTTP before it? Well, you used to have to use that kind of protocol in order to send an email. Today... Your grandma can use an email and have no concept of how it works. So 
the analogy is well bitcoin is 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 really the the infant first application that's still not easy to use you know your grandma can't use bitcoin without having to do a little bit of research and start to understand it so the what i'm trying to get at is when email is like it is today well the internet produces something like amazon so 20 years 25 years down the road we get something like amazon that you would have never imagined when we had email and and i would say cryptocurrency being that first technology is really coming you know at the end basically it was 2017 when when cryptocurrency kind of and and more so bitcoin took uh, a rise to fame if you want to call it that i mean the price of bitcoin went from just under a thousand dollars to its peak or all-time peak in 2017 of about seventeen thousand dollars actually uh nineteen thousand is what i have on this on october december 17th 2017 nineteen thousand dollars on uh this coin desk website that i'm looking at right now so that that's the the reason it became popular was because of the financial side of things it, it you know right now the price has got dropped back down to about seven thousand um seven thousand us dollars for one bitcoin so the but the idea that i'm trying to get at here is the is the technology side that you know it's it's an innovation that we don't fully know what what is that going to look like um a good example that i think the listeners can can appreciate uh, is um with respect to to land deeds i mean in in canada we're blessed you know in north america we're blessed with knowing you know if i own my property nobody can you know, no government official can come along and just by a stroke of pen pretend like it's not mine. But in third world countries, that is the case, right? One of the biggest problems in let's, Africa in general, nobody's building on their land because the government, corrupt government official could come along and just write on a piece of, you know, by a stroke of a pen, change it, and you no longer own it and someone else does. But if you were to put the actual land deeds onto a distributed ledger there is no ability for that government official to do what they're doing in, in third world countries and so this is where i mean things like this is is underway um i'd say more so probably in a north american standpoint but as we roll out the crypto technology to other applications we're going to see innovations that that we really almost can't comprehend um another one that again for the listener you may or may not know there's a lot of issues around stocks and who actually owns them um and so a lot of times you actually have more claims to a stock than there are stocks so what i mean by that is there's 100 stocks well 105 people think they own the stock um, that might sound a little absurd to you. It is absurd. Um, but that is actually the environment that we live in because of the way things are done. Um, so cryptocurrency is, is again, just the first, you know, first application of this technology. Um, and, and I'm, I'm personal, I listen to a, quite a bit of podcasts on 
crypto and, and where things are going. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty excited because I think um, we're going to have a lot of innovation that that we can't even comprehend, but will significantly change the way we do things. So I know my, my little tirade was a bit long there, Darnell. But uh, for you, you know, what what uh, level of knowledge would you say you have of, of Bitcoin and, and whatnot? Um, and, and for the listener, what what excites you about it or what what uh, what makes you think it's going to be impactful? Uh, my level of knowledge knows enough to know that it's important and that it's it's some it's a definitely a technology that that needs to continue to develop. And I don't think people should be afraid of. So for example, right, the reason why I think that it should be number one on the list is because, um, well, one for one, like the basic principle is that innovation helps move societies forward, forward, like in the industrial revolution and how it advanced Europe and how it advanced um, America. And we also see God's command for innovation in the cultural mandate in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 28, and also in Genesis 9, 1, where God tells us to use his creation to cultivate it for human flourishing, right? We shouldn't be afraid of the technology, but I think that, especially when you're talking about cryptocurrency and being able to purchase online without the middleman um, overseeing or mediating um, your transactions online, which frees up, which frees up uh, the market. So people can do more uh, business between each other. Uh, that's great. But part of, I think, the concern, especially, you know, I guess for me as a Christian, um, looking at, okay, well, getting involved in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and the hype around it, um, you know, people were kind of torn. Like, is this gambling? Dr. Herschel York, professor of Christian preaching at Southern Seminary, has some great insights into the difference between gambling and investing. What gambling is... Is basically bad stewardship. It's like playing the lottery, right? Because the whole point of playing the lottery is to get money, uh, essentially greed, right? So gambling uh, goes against the ethic of, you know, working for yours. Uh, with gambling, there's there's winners and losers, um, and also, you know, not to get into it, but you know, like uh, playing the lottery is like a, a, a regressive tax on the poor, right? So mm-hmm. gambling. Um, and risk aren't the same thing. So risks, um, there isn't winners or losers, but there's usually mostly winners, right? So when you're taking a risk, you're investing. So investment is for others to profit. So I want that company to succeed um, and everybody wins, right? So at, so we're really looking at, okay, fine. I'm going to invest in Bitcoin, Right. But then you also have to wrestle with ethical investment and unethical investment. I think Bitcoin is an ethical investment uh, because it helps us to uh, move the economy forward by encouraging free trade. And so I think that's going to be a huge thing for um, us as Canadians and people around the world to do, especially for us who are in a first world country and who have family and who for some of us of Canadians who have come from a third world country and we want to send money back home. So now we can efficiently send money back home uh, through this new technology without a middleman. So we can do more to help 
um, our family abroad. So I, I, I think it's a good idea, um, but we should still be cautious and really looking at um, that this isn't a perfect means yet, like it's still developing. So in the article by Joe Carter, uh, who's an editor for the Gospel Coalition, and so he talks about what are the advantages of Bitcoin. And so the advantages of using Bitcoin are mostly ideological. So there are four main groups of people uh, who are attracted to Bitcoin system. So he talks about people who are obsessed with privacy, people who despise the government, uh, people who are interested in online experiments, and people who are interested in economic speculation. And then he talks about what are the disadvantages, the potential disadvantages. Uh, so he talks about the convertibility, the instability, and limited protection against fraud. Either way, how you slice it, you know, you still want to use discernment and, um, and wisdom and, and navigating and investing uh, to help promote uh, the economy. Well, and, and I think, you know, there's some, again, we're not giving invest, investment advice just to be... In, right, in yeah, 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 that's right. Just to hear that <laughs> disclaimer. Um, you know, there's, there's an aspect where I think... You know, I think you laid a good, it's a good point you made about comparing, um, you know, gambling and, and investing. But I think it's easy for some people to actually invest in a manner that is essentially gambling. Um, and, and just take the simple, there's a simple investing principle of diversification. You know, and if, if you're putting all of your money into high risk assets, like all of your money is in cryptocurrency and or you're you know you have all your money in penny stocks i mean i would argue are you just playing the lottery right is your goal to win you're just hoping one of them hits it big and you make it big i would say that's not investing that's playing the lottery right. that's poor stewardship um but to say hey i'm gonna take 5% of my portfolio, 20% of my portfolio and put it into high risk things. That's a a diverse that's following the diversification, you know, principle. So, I I just thought it was a good, you know, to reiterate that you know, if if you're especially if you're let's say someone who's a day trader, if you're taking, you know, you're you're day trading and you're trying to make a bunch of money, but you're doing it in a manner that you're putting yourself at such a risk that if something was to unfold in a manner that's not good, um, you could lose everything you have. And, you know, you're, you've got, I mean, it depends on your life situation. You're a 20 year old, you have no responsibilities and you have tw 10 grand and you're doing something with it. Not a big deal. You're 35 years old, 40 years old, and you've got a family to take care of and you're taking 90% of your life savings and you're putting it into something, uh, you know, bad stewardship, whether you call it gambling or not. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, I, I think you made, you know, a really good point too uh, around cross-border. Uh, and, and I think that's something where, you know, no currency realm, um, trying to solve cross-border payments Um I think there's a an African-based cryptocurrency. I think it's called Walla or Dwalla or something like that. I have to. I heard about it a while back. I think it's Walla. 
and and they're just trying to solve the problem where you know there's there's businesses or, or individuals that work with so many people in a region and there's so many different currencies uh, and in essence they're kind of providing a common currency with 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 let's say relatively cheap on and off ramps whereas like right now if you're trying to send money across the world you're a lot of times you're you know it's not cheap to get money into a particular currency that's let's say a little bit less known or, or less common um, you're you're paying a lot of transfer and 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 a lot of fees, um, so that's a that's a big aspect of the the crypto currency where things are being you know the, or problems are being solved or at least trying to be. Um, I, and I would just say to play uh, I guess devil's advocate for any of the listener thinking like okay well why did you pick this innovation, um, you know for me at least the thinking was. You know, the next decade, the next five years, the next probably 20 years is going to have a significant amount of change due to technology or due to innovation. Um, and, and, you know, the things that most people might think about and asking why we're not talking about is whether it's AI, automation, self-driving cars. And, and I think for, for us, the rationale here is that for most people, they actually understand what those things are and, and kind of know maybe AI is a little bit more, you know, obscure. But for automation, you know, we see self-checkout lines. We see, um, you know, different things in life changing. You see the fact that when you go to McDonald's, you now order at a, you know, screen instead of talking to an individual. Self-driving cars, we kind of know that, you know, the trucking industry eventually will get you know, up, uh, let's say just impacted significantly if and when those things get approved um, to be on the road. For for me, at least, the idea was those things kind of fall under this category of technology change, which I would see in the next decade. But I think for Bitcoin and distributed ledger technology, it's the impact on 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 a larger scale is really unknown because the applications of this technology are so vast. I mean, we're talking about, like, literally, distributed ledger technology can revolutionize gaming. Right? Which, when we're talking about, what, what you, the listener might be saying, what do you mean? We were talking about Bitcoin. Like, how does that have to do with anything to do with great gaming? And, and it's really just the idea of, you know, ordering of activities on a ledger that is trusted um so you know think of it in terms of a first person shooter game um for any of the listeners that are gamers out there how many times you're like i shot the guy but i'm dead and or or you know complaining about lag on the internet well the idea being that arguably distributed ledger technology can actually help make those things less of a problem um so, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to claim that I'm I know that that's what's going to happen, but the idea is that distributed ledger technology has applications far beyond, you know, something like currency. But currency is an application where it's really interesting. Um, the last thing I'll say is uh, I remember listening to a podcast where the they were talking about somebody was was this guy was mentioning that he was talking to regulators in the U.S. and different agencies and whatnot. And, you know, as they're asking him questions for him to help educate them on uh, cryptocurrencies and whatnot, 
he he was kind of finding it ironic that the way that they're asking questions, they don't really understand that this technology will replace the regulator. And the rationale or the reasoning behind that is because something like Bitcoin or an alternative to Bitcoin will have a set of rules. And those rules are essentially what the regulator currently enforces. But the system will be designed in such a way that either you follow the rules or you're in another system. And so enforcement occurs at less, you know, the regulator's role essentially gets eliminated because it's just automated. Um, and, and arguably now you're in competition with what rules do you want? Hey, if I want to go to a scenario where I know that all the vendors provide certain level of, you know, let's say warranty on products, arguably the, the currency system can enforce those rules because by transacting in a particular cryptocurrency, you know the rules of the game with that currency. Um, so I know it's a bit of a, you know, maybe a mind stretch for some people because they're like, Compared to the way that we operate financially today, it's a bit foreign. Um, but I think that's what makes it exciting, and that's what makes um, the changes that crypto will bring uh, promising, but also really unknown. Okay, cool. Like, if you guys have anything, um, if you guys disagree with uh, our top five, let us know. And. Yeah, you can hit us up on uh, our Facebook group, and you can hit us up on Twitter at Six Sense Report on Twitter. If you're trying to get in touch with me, it's Darnell, or you're trying to get in touch with me as Do Good Darnell D O G U D D A underscore Darnell on Twitter, Instagram, and Darnell Samuels on Facebook. And I'm at T Joel N thirty nine, and our uh, the Six Sense Report. You can find it at drop the the Six Sense Report at all social media. Well, Facebook and Twitter. Six Sense makes change. But you heard me. Does that make sense?